Well, thank you, Kevin, very much. And um, welcome to part three of five of Got the Nerve, a five-part series in which we're studying how to jump out of airplanes at uh, 20,000 feet. This is a study uh, on the idea that believing is just not enough, that what Jesus actually called us to is not just to be believers, but to be followers. And there's a difference between the two, that you can actually believe something and not do anything about it and just be in situation of belief, but not actually activate that belief and follow at all. And so we're studying the life of Peter, and Peter was one of the early followers of Jesus uh, when Jesus was on the planet, Peter was too, and he followed him. But Peter's story is one of incredible courage and failure, courage and failure, courage and failure. He went forward, and he was the bold man, he was a spokesman for the disciples, but then he just blew it big time as well, and it takes nerve to activate faith. And so we're going to cover a story from Peter, but before we do this morning, I want to ask you a question to frame it up a little bit, and that is, is there any worse feeling that you have had than when you have disappointed yourself or someone you love because of a lack of integrity in your own life? Is there a worse feeling of letting yourself down or letting someone down whom you love because you cheated on them? You lied to them or to yourself. You looked at the things that you said you wouldn't look at again, and the guilt and the shame came on you. You, like maybe I did when I was younger, maybe you have the experience of wanting people to like you, and so you're willing to, in a conversation over here with these friends, join in negative conversation about that friend who's not in the room. So you can gain their affection and attention, and then you realize that he overheard the whole conversation, and you just feel gutted. Because you sold them out in your friendship. Is there a worse feeling than betraying your own values and betraying the people whom you love? And this morning is a story of that in the life of Peter. And it's a story that I want to tell you through the lens of one of the other disciples who followed Jesus. And his name was Matthew. And Matthew's going to tell the bulk of this story. And you can fact check me later or now if you want to in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament Um, And because there's so much content to cover, I'm going to tell you the story this morning rather than go verse by verse through uh, your Bible. But I want you to know that the stories I'm going to tell you this morning are not ones that I've made up. And they are in the the first book of what we call the New Testament, Matthew chapters 24 and 25 and 26. And to set this up a little bit, um, Jesus himself is sitting with his disciples and he's, he's having a conversation with them now as they're actually walking out of the great, beautiful city of Jerusalem. And if you can imagine this for a minute, the disciples and Jesus just visited Jerusalem with its great temple. And the temple was one of the essentially ancient wonders of the world. It was a beautiful. It was set on these huge stones that weighed hundreds of pounds apiece. It was a magnificent structure. The temple became the center of worship for the nation of Israel and for the Jews at the time. They had just walked away from the temple. And so as they're walking away from the temple, the disciples, as anyone would who's just experienced great architecture, they react to it. Isn't that, isn't this, aren't the buildings in Jerusalem beautiful? Matthew records in Matthew 24. To which Jesus, who knows how to kill a conversation, by the way, here's what he said. He said, just give it time. In a matter of time, every stone on that temple will be overturned and cast off the cliff or the hill upon which it is sitting, because the temple set up on a hill. It was the pinnacle, the high point, the city, and it was going to all be, every stone will be overturned and thrown over. To which the disciples scratched their collective heads like, that was a real, like, downer, Jesus. Like, that was beautiful. What? What is going on? And they walk away from Jerusalem, and they walk toward the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives 
you walk up into this space, into this space where you can oversee the city of Jerusalem. And as they're walking up there, disciples kind of are processing what he just said, and they ask him, Jesus, hey, um, this is news. Can you tell us when this is going to happen? Can you tell us when this is going to happen? And then Jesus goes on, and sitting there at the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and he begins to tell them when this is going to happen. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus explains all these things, to which it leaves the disciples scratching their heads even more. Because he begins talking about there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. He's going to say the sun will, will be blotted out, and then all these things are going to happen, to which they're like, I have no idea what he is saying at all. And they don't even have time to react to the whole thing until finally at the end of chapter 25, because he goes on for a long time. He's talking. Since you asked, I'll tell you, here's what. And then he collects his breath. And Matthew 26 opens with this statement. When Jesus is sitting there at the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem, Jesus then adds one more like conversation killer, a heavy weight <laughs> to a conversation. He's like, okay, you all know two days until the Passover, the feast, by the way, in which everyone comes. Thousands and thousands of Jews will invade, if you will, Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He says, two more days until the Passover. Then the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And Matthew cuts the narrative there. He cuts the story and the camera shifts. The story, the focus shifts from the Mount of Olives overlooking that to a palace, to the place, to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And in Caiaphas's palace, he's the, the lead religious leader in Jerusalem at the time. And Caiaphas realizes that we have a problem on our hands. Jesus' ministry has grown. And the problem that Caiaphas faces is that he has got to keep the Jews under control, under Roman control, because Rome is in charge and the Jews function underneath Roman authority. And as long as the Jewish leaders keep civil rule, then they can continue to worship as they are used to worshiping. That's fine. Continue to go to the temple. Continue to offer yourself. Continue to do whatever you want. Just don't create a problem. We almost don't even want to know you're there. And the problem is for Caiaphas, and he invites to his home, to his palace, the elders, the chief priests, and himself, and it's a secret meeting, and they're trying to figure out what do we do with Jesus because he has become a very popular blue-collar teacher. People are following him, and there's going to be thousands of people coming into Jerusalem, and they're going to, they're going to re revolt, rebel against our traditions, our history. What are we going to do? And so they secretly plot, and they ask the question. They're asking the question in the palace of Caiaphas. How can we arrest and kill Jesus? And that question hangs in the air, and there's no answer to that in the moment. And then Matthew cuts the scene back to Jesus and his disciples, who have now found their way over to Simon the leper's house over here. What a contrast, by the way, from the palace of the high priest, where the religious leader is, to a leper's home, where the real religious leader is. And Jesus is there eating a meal with a leper named Simon. And in walks this unnamed anonymous woman who does something that for you and me would be incredibly strange, but for them was amazing. And she walks in and she has this very expensive bottle of perfume and she takes it and she pours it on Jesus' head. Imagine that at your lunch table today, someone walking in, pouring that. To which the disciples react, <laughs> like, Jesus Jesus, what a waste. Are, are you serious? Like, Jesus, haven't you come to teach us? Didn't you do the Sermon on the Mount where you talked about blessed are the, the poor and blessed are the, the meek 
And the, the peacemakers, Jesus, haven't you come for the people who are downtrodden? Haven't you come for the people who don't have many resources? Haven't you come to help the people who don't have much? Like, that's what I thought you were about. And Caiaphas and his money and all that, the bribery that's going on between Jews and Rome, like, you, you're neglecting that. Aren't you here for the common people and for the poor and the under-resourced? Like, isn't this what you're here for? How can you sit here, Jesus, and allow something like this expensive bottle of perfume to be wasted when we could sell that bottle and give all the money to the poor. And that's exactly what they say. Judas, one of the twelve, his heart turns in that moment. And he's sitting there. That's what turns his heart. He most likely had been having questions about Jesus' teaching for a little while, and maybe it wasn't what he signed on for, but Judas, maybe, maybe because he really wanted to help the poor, I don't know what it was, but Judas decided on that moment, you know what, this is not what I've signed up for. And Judas leaves the house of Simon the leper and goes over to Caiaphas and his secret meeting over here at his palace. And he answers a question that was hanging in the balance of how are we going to kill and arrest Jesus? And Judas becomes the answer after the anonymous woman anoints Jesus. And he says to the chief priest and the high priest, how much will you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? Problem solved. The next morning, the disciples, all of them meet with Jesus and they say, the Passover is coming and what kind of preparations do you want us to make? To which Jesus says, go into Jerusalem, you're going to find a man who has a room for rent, basically, and you can go use that space, and that space will be one that we're going to go to tonight to have a meal together. And so they go, they find it just as Jesus had said, and they get into this room, and the evening comes on, and they recline around this table. You may have seen pictures of this painting, if you will, of, you know, I think it was a Da Vinci, I don't know who painted it, but uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Last Supper painting, and they're reclining around the table, fairly accurate depiction of that, and you have these people laying, you know, sitting across there, and imagine, if you will, the conversation that's going on at this time. And imagine what they would be talking about as they sit around the table. This is normal human conversation. If you've ever had a group dinner with people, imagine what it's like. They talk about the day. They talk about what they're upcoming. And I bet, I bet, Jesus still smells like perfume. Because I don't have a lot of hair for perfume to get into. But I can only imagine if you have a head full of hair and someone takes their entire perfume bottle and pours it on your head where it's dripping down over your body and you do not have the kind of plumbing and ability to clean that we do today, it would probably take a while for that smell to go away. And so here sits Jesus, still, I believe, smelling a little bit like he did yesterday when that moment happened. And they're in conversation and they're just talking and then Jesus drops another conversation killer in the middle of the room. Here's what he says. I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. Well, that's light. To which all the disciples are, as, as Matthew writes it, sad and confused. Sure. Sure. And they all go around taking turns. And as Matthew writes, he said, you know, surely not I, says John. And surely not I, says Peter. And Nathaniel, surely not I. And they take their turns being like, like no, not me, like, not me, not me. And Judas says, surely not I. To which Jesus very clearly says, yeah, it's you. And then, after identifying his betrayer in front of everybody, Jesus breaks bread with everybody and hands them a piece of bread, including Judas, and saying, this bread is my body broken for you, for you, 
for you, for you, Judas, for you. They all take and eat the bread together in that poignant moment. It's too much for Judas. He can't handle the pressure and the weight of that. And another gospel writer tells us that after the bread, Judas got up and left. He's overcome with emotion that he's even going to do this and the courage that it takes to do this and the betrayal he's feeling and the grace that Jesus just showed him. And he's out the door. Jesus continues. And then he pours the cup and gives the the cup to the disciples. And it's a shame that Judas walked out just before this because Jesus gives the cup to the remaining 11 disciples there. And he says to them, this cup is the, the covenant, is the blood of the covenant that is given, that is offered for the forgiveness of your sins. Yeah, Judas, even yours that you're about to commit. And so they drink together, they've eaten together, and their, their evening finishes with an acoustic song together. They sing together the, what is called the Hallel, parts of Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. Parts of that, they sing together. Imagine this acoustic rendering of all male voices, a dozen men singing together in this upper room after this poignant moment of Judas walking out for the first time. There's only 11 of them. Judas is gone. He's going to betray. What does that even mean? And Jesus had just said, my body and forgiveness, and we're singing together the Psalms. And they walk out from the upper room, and they go out, and the evening is fully set on, and Jesus takes them back to the Mount of Olives where they were just a couple days earlier, and they go up to the Mount of Olives. And there Jesus makes this statement to the remaining 11 who no doubt are talking about why Judas left in the first place. And here's what he says to them. He says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. I know you're critical of Judas. He's not here anymore. But I'm just going to tell you, all of you, all of you tonight, you're going to leave me tonight. To which Peter, as a spokesman, is like, I don't think so, Jesus. No way. And Jesus says, actually, thanks, Peter, for that. But you are. You are. And then he says, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to disown me. And then Peter says this, because he's a spokesperson, he's brash, he's strong, like, no way, not me. He says this, even if I have to die with you, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. To which Jesus is like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. Let's go. Let's walk down the hill to the Garden of Gethsemane. They walk down under the moonlight to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're there in the garden, and Jesus says, um, Keep watch here. You, you guys hang out here. I'm going to go over here to pray. And Jesus goes over to this space to pray, and he begins praying earnestly. His, his heart and his will and his mind are all moved deeply with emotion. In fact, the, Matthew records, he says that he prayed so hard in this moment that blood and sweat kind of came out of him. That he was so deeply engaged in his prayer, and because Jesus knew that he was about to be crucified. And he said to his father in that moment, in that space in the Garden of Gethsemane, while the disciples were to be waiting for him, he said, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So after a little bit of time, after that prayer, he goes back to the disciples to check on them. They're sleeping. I can't blame them. It's late into the evening by now. They're tired. Very emotional night so far. He wakes them up and says, can you please wake up? Like, I'm, I'm praying. I want you to watch with me, pray with me, like join in me, with me in spirit, like be a part of my, my team. And he goes back and he prays again. The second time, the same thing, if it's possible, let this cup pass me. I don't want to go to the cross. Comes back, they're sleeping again, wakes him up, goes back to pray again for the third time, prays again. And he comes back and they're sleeping and he wakes him up and he says, listen, time to get up. The betrayer is on his way. 
And as they get up and they look and they see Judas coming with a group of armed men carrying uh, clubs and swords, Matthew writes, and they come up on him. And you know the sign of Judas coming to, to Jesus is going to be a betrayal by a kiss. And so Judas comes over to Jesus and he gives him a kiss. And the men arrest him. To which Peter still, with this courage and this fight of, I'm not going to deny you. No, no, no. I'm going to die before I do that. Peter, in his reaction to this, you're going to arrest Jesus. He pulls out his sword. You brought a sword. You're here for a fight, right? I'll, I'll bring it. And he brings out a sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest Caiaphas's servant. To which Jesus says, Peter, put it away. Put it away. And he puts the ear back on and heals the servant of the high priest. And Jesus is arrested. And for the first time, the disciples see Jesus in a vulnerable position that he's not going to get out of. And for the first time, they have fear they have never had before. Jesus always dealt with the crowds. He always dealt with the religious leaders. He always won those battles. And here's their leader, vulnerable, arrested, and giving himself over. And they're smart men, and they know if our leader is arrested, we're next. And each one of them runs. And in the very moment when Jesus needed his disciples the most, he has now no disciples. He has now no followers. They all desert. And Jesus is walked away toward Caiaphas' house, and somewhere along his journey, Peter thinks, I want to see at least where they're taking him, because I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. I want to know what's going to happen to him. So he follows him a distance, and he sees him take Jesus up to Caiaphas's palace, his place. And Peter follows at a distance until they get into the the courtyard and then into the inner chamber, into the inner home, the large home that Caiaphas had. And Peter hangs out in the courtyard while Jesus goes in to the, um, uh, the inner part of Caiaphas's home. And there inside Caiaphas's home, the Sanhedrin gather. The Sanhedrin are, are a gathering of 71 religious leaders. Sadducees and Pharisees are their names. Sadducees were the, the majority in that ruling group, and the Pharisees were the minority. The Sadducees were more easily controlled by the Romans. They could accept bribes, and so there was more Sadducees than Pharisees. And so we had this gathering of, of the Sanhedrin meant to kind of organize and keep civil rule under control in Jerusalem. Probably wasn't all of them, probably representative, uh, representation of the 71 who were there, but the Sanhedrin gathered, even if it was just in representative form, in Caiaphas' home. Now we're somewhere in the middle of the night. And they begin to pepper Jesus with questions, and they begin to bring witnesses to Jesus to try to condemn him to say, you know, what he's done. And finally, someone comes forward, and nothing sticks, nothing sticks, nothing sticks. And finally, one witness comes forward and is like, you know what? I heard him say that if he's, you tear down the temple, remember that temple? That temple that's our identity, that he can rebuild it in three days. Caiaphas, like, well, what do you have to say? And then finally, Caiaphas says this. I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Like, I've had enough. I've heard all this testimony. Nothing is sticking. There's enough. Line in the sand. Jesus, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus says, yep, it is as you say. And to which Caiaphas then tears his robe. The high priest tears his robe and declares, what more do we need to hear? 
he has condemned himself to death. And everyone agrees, and in that moment, they spit on Jesus, they punch him, they slap him, and mockingly say, well, why don't you tell us who hit you? Who was that? Can you see? Can you tell? Come on. You're the prophet, right? Tell us. Peter is hearing all this in the courtyard. He's seeing all this in the courtyard. And at that same moment, he's about to have his own trial, and the trial begins with a junior high girl. And she says, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? Aren't you one of his followers? To which Peter says, no, no, no. No, that's not me. Peter was nearer the home at that point, so he could see what was happening. And upon that moment of recognizing Jesus is condemned to death, and Peter's like, oh, you're thinking I'm with him? I'm going to back up a little bit. And Matthew tells us, after that engagement with that junior high girl who was a servant girl, he backs up toward the exit, toward the gate where he could get out, and he hangs out toward the exit a little bit. And there, just a few moments later, another girl says to him, I am sure that I have seen you with Jesus. <laughs> no, not only no, but let me take an oath no. And he takes an oath against himself saying, no, listen, no, may it never be. I'm going to take an oath, a promise, a, a life-compelling um, promise. It is not me. And just moments later, someone else, people around him who heard him speaking because he had a dialect from the north in Galilee, said, you've got to be one of his followers. Come on, you speak like those people from Galilee. and We've seen you, to which Peter now, in doing every attempt that he can to get out of the mess that he has found himself, brings down a curse on Jesus. He curses Jesus now. He says, no, 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 listen. I don't even know that man, and then he curses his name, which becomes, by the way, the standard operating procedure for a Roman army leader, army and naval leader named Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, who in the centuries to follow, for Christians who would be accused of following Christ and who were saying, you know, who were, who, um, were going to decide if they were going to live or die, Pliny would put him up there and say, listen, if you tell me, if you curse God, if you curse Christ like Peter did, I will spare your life. And Peter's cursing of Jesus becomes a standard, which Pliny says, hey, if you're going to do that, we know you're not a follower of Jesus. So if you want your life, we have the model. Peter did it. You got it in you or not. And Peter curses Jesus and walks away. And here's what happened. Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken because the rooster crowed. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside. And imagine this grown man in that moment, and he wept. And you can imagine it because you have felt some of these same feelings. And he wept bitterly. Everything in him was against what he had just done, and he has turned over inside of himself. And here's the question for Peter. How in the world... Do you recover from something like this? How in the world do you recover from violating your basic principles, from violating, from betraying the person whom you love so deeply? How do you recover from disappointing yourself so deeply and disappointing those around you from your lack of integrity coming and collapsing on you deeply? How do you recover from that? And this is the last time that we see Peter mentioned in the entire Gospel of Matthew. This is where Matthew leaves us, with Peter weeping bitterly outside, a man broken and turned in on himself. Thankfully, John, another follower of Jesus, finishes a story for us. In John chapter 21, the last chapter in the Gospel of John, John tells us a story of what happened after Jesus was crucified, came back to life. Jesus meets with groups of people, and he met with the disciples at least on two different occasions. And then 
a morning happened. A couple days after the resurrection, Peter meets with six of the disciples. So there's seven of them on the shore. Peter is back, by the way, to his fishing business now. After this moment, he didn't go and build the church. He didn't go and tell people about Jesus. He didn't do any of that. Peter went back to fishing. There was no movement. There was no church to join. There was no Christianity. There was just, Jesus is gone, and I'm Peter, and I have deeply disappointed everybody, including myself. And so Peter, with his tail between his legs and his courage shot, goes back to fishing. Six of them, seven of them are there on the shore, and Peter says, you know, let's go fishing. So they go out on the boat. They throw the nets out. They catch nothing, somewhat normal. They start rowing back into shore, and there's a solitary figure, as John writes, on the shore watching them come in. The solitary figure calls out, Friends, have you caught anything? To which they say, no. And the solitary figure says, throw your net out on the right side of the boat and try again. The dumbest fishing advice in the world. But Peter knew a couple years ago, someone said that exact same thing to me. And that's when I followed Jesus. And Jesus returns to the same spot with the same miracle to come back to Peter to begin the process of restoration of Peter. They throw the nets over and they catch, as John says, 153 fish. The the catch is so large they struggle to get it in the boat and they cannot help but row back. And John writes that Peter, in such excitement, put his outer garments around him and he, before the boat even came to shore, he jumped out in excitement. And if you have ever seen kids or you've ever done it, try to run into the ocean, you start kind of monster stepping on the way in so you're not falling down on your face. Peter, I'm imagining now, is doing that. As soon as he thinks he can walk, he gets out and kind of monster steps over and runs to Jesus, I'm sure, embraces him. They bring some of the fish over. They have a a morning breakfast of fish and something to drink, and they're talking. And then Jesus finally does what he's come there to do, and he says, Peter, come walk with me. We get this picture of Jesus walking with Peter down the shore, and Jesus asks this question. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, do you know I love you? And Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. Jesus asks again, Peter, do you love me? Which Peter said, yeah. And Jesus says, well, take care of my sheep. And then the third time, Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter is now annoyed. He's hurt. And here's what we read in John's Gospel. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And what should Jesus say next? Because here's what I think he could say next. Really, Peter? then why did you leave me when I needed you? Why did you walk? You were in the courtyard. You love me, you love me, you love me? I need an explanation, Peter. You failed. You haven't performed at all. I need an explanation. Why would you disown me three times? You really love me? Jesus would have a right to say that. But Jesus didn't ask for an explanation. Jesus could have been justified in asking for an apology. Peter, I know you say you love me, but this is what you did. What do you have to say for yourself? 
But he didn't ask for an apology. All that Jesus did, after the third time, is he said to Peter, follow me. Peter, I don't need an explanation. I don't need an apology. But here's what I want to remind you, Peter. Yeah, you love me. And you always follow what you love. You love me more than fishing, Peter. Come on. You know you do. But you're afraid that your performance back there at the courtyard has made me not love you and you have given up following me because you think you failed. It's gutted you. You can't trust yourself. You follow what you love, Peter. Come on, you know you love me more than fishing, but here you are back at the boat again because you've been gutted. You've been disappointed. You've frustrated yourself. You can't trust yourself, and here you are. You've lost your manhood almost. What are you doing here? You follow what you love, but you perform for whom you have to impress. Right? You perform for people you have to impress. This is why we perform for our bosses, right? This is why we perform for certain members of our family. We perform for people we have to impress, and some of us think we have to perform to impress God. Some of us think that the failures in our past, when we've cheated, when we've lied, when we have fallen back into lust after 157th million times, we've said, no, we're not going to do that. That our performance for God has gutted us, and we are unable to follow with the courage and conviction Because God somehow wants a performance. And Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? I'm not asking you for an explanation as to why you failed. I'm not asking you for an apology for why you failed. I want you to follow me. Performance isn't sustainable. And that's why what Jesus does is so powerful. Jesus' message underneath all of this is this, that love and not performance drives courageous faith. That love, not performance, drives courageous faith. That for all of us, and for Peter included, what is going to drive him back to courage, get him back off of what he's done again, like going back to fishing, being afraid, realizing he's been so gutted because he hasn't performed. He hasn't performed. He failed them. He betrayed Jesus in the moment that he said he wouldn't do it. He did. He failed badly. And then he's punishing himself for that. And Jesus says, do you, Peter, do you love me? Because a relationship with me is not going to be based on your performance, but on whether you love me. Three times, several things happen in this story. Three times, Jesus goes to pray in the garden. Three times, Peter betrays or denies Jesus. Three times, Jesus appears to the disciples before this story. In other words, Peter had already seen Jesus twice before this morning, and he's still at his fishing boat. This is not the first time Peter saw him. This is the third time that he's seen him. And on the third time, Jesus asked him a series of three questions. Do you love? Do you love? Do you love? Because you and I need reminders more than once. 
things that we know are true. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The only, hero, the only hero in this story that I've told this morning, that Matthew told and that John told, the only hero besides Jesus, of course, is the anonymous woman back at Simon the leper's house who took that, jug, that jar of perfume and poured it over Jesus' head and gave out of her love for Jesus an abundance without thinking about it because we follow what we love And when we love, we do incredibly courageous and sometimes wild things. And here's Jesus coming back to Peter, being like, Peter, these are my words. I don't believe Jesus wanted Peter to live out the string of the rest of his life under the shroud of disappointment. I don't believe Jesus wanted Peter to just go into his 20s and 30s and 60s and 80s living out the reality of his past failure. I don't think Jesus wanted Peter to continue to beat himself up thinking, man, I've never been good enough. Like, I failed over here. I cheated on my spouse over here. I've looked at that stuff again. I cannot forgive over there. I lose my temper again. I'm cutting the edges around the corner of my business. I caused this thing to fail, and people have lost their jobs because of my integrity issues, and I'm not getting along with my kids and my teammates, and I'm just struggling badly. Like, inside of me, no one knows what's going on. If anyone knew what's inside my heart and the things I think about, man, God, I know that I have to perform. And here's what Jesus says, Peter, come on. It isn't about your performance. In fact, I don't even want an explanation. I don't even want an apology. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you, do you love me? Because Peter, you follow what you love and I, your relationship with me is based on this. Love, not performance, drives courageous faith. And that's Jesus' message to Peter, and I believe to all of us. I don't know where you find yourself, if you've ever found yourself disappointed, struggling with a weight from your past, the shroud and the weight of disappointment, failure, personal integrity struggles. If you've ever been in a situation where you've wondered if in your future... You can have the kind of courageous faith, the kind of consistency that you would like to have if you've wondered about that. The answer is probably not, because we know who we are. But here's the good news from Jesus. Your love for me, not your performance for me, drives you to follow me. Do you love me? you love me more than fishing? Do you love me more than rehearsing the failures of your past? Come on, do you Just come back to me. <laughs> I'm not even angry with you. Just love me. Just love me. And Jesus' question echoes through time. It comes down to you, comes down to me. And the question is repeated three times. Do you love me? Do, do you? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And if, if we do, if we do, Follow me, whatever it takes, including the future failure that will come. Because Jesus wants you to follow, because you love, and because you have to, because of who he is. This is Peter's story. I hope it can be yours, too. I hope you do not ever have to play out the string of personal disappointment and the weight of that and give up all that God would have for you 
as we struggle to follow Jesus and take the next step, whatever it might be. It's incredibly profound truth. Our love, not our performance, drives courageous faith. Next week, we're going to see one more story in the life of Peter. I would love to have you come back for that one. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time together this morning to see in the story of Peter and the life of Peter how he walked through both success and incredible failure and betrayed the person he loved most deeply and the internal struggle and the weight that he carried. And I know that that can be deeply damaging to our drive, deeply damaging to our identity, and we can struggle to believe that we're worth anything after we fail again and again and again. But I pray, Father, that you would help all of us in this room and those listening online later, you'd help all of us to put off that weight that we have put on ourselves, thinking that somehow we have to beat ourselves up enough for our past failures before we're ready to follow, before we're worthy of following again. God, I pray that you would free us from that religious burden and the shackles of that legality, and that we could step back into a free gracious offering of a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, who even after Judas said, was identified as a betrayer, Jesus still gave him the bread, invited him to participate in this intimate meal together. So I pray that you would help us, Father, not to put the weight on ourselves, not to run with our tail between our legs and to lose passion and conviction over failures. but to be reminded of our first love and to ask ourselves a question again. Do I love Jesus? Do, do I love him? Do I really love him? And to trust the answer and to follow the way Jesus would have us to follow. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.